All right, Isaiah chapter 9, starting with verse 1. We're going to read about the first seven verses. And this is by many scholars, and I would agree, another messianic prophecy. So, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In former time, uh, he brought into uh, contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of trampling warrior... And the battle of Tolmont and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace that there will be no, uh, there of no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice And with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This passage could have easily been another one that Stuart Weinish and his rabbi friend turned and talked to. It's talking about the land, the the Israelites, where they were were in a time of bondage. And there's this promise of this one to come who's going to uh, bring peace and is going to reestablish the throne of David. And if you remember, that's one of the things they agreed on, that that the Messiah would sit and rule on the throne of David forever and ever. And this is another one of those passages that reinforced that, that promise or that prophecy that, that he's going to be a descendant of David and he's going to be like a, a king greater than David. <coughs> Excuse me. But this could have easily been another one of those passages that Stuart and his rabbi friend looked to and talked about and they would have had the same debate. When this Messiah comes... The rabbi would say it will be his first appearance, and and Stuart would say, no, he's already come, and he was the Messiah, meaning Jesus. Well, for our time in Advent, our our plan for Christmas this year, for the Advent season over the next four weeks, is we're going to take one of these verses, this verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting, uh, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Over the next four weeks, we're going to take each one of those titles and kind of break it down and, and just kind of hopefully be amazed and remind ourselves who Jesus is and, and just, just study him and think about him and focus on him. Um, as, uh, as Keith and I were talking this morning, um, it, you know, we had these two great gifts one is the coming of Jesus and what he did for us, and the second is the Holy Spirit, these, these great gifts that God has given us to, to live with right now. And so we're just going to appreciate what we have. Now, there's one kind of disclaimer I want to make at the beginning, something I'll probably repeat from time to time to remind ourselves, because when I look at those words, and I'm sure I've probably preached on this verse at one point like this, where we look at the, his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we've got to be careful sometimes when we read the Old Testament not to take New Testament concepts 
and pick them up and take them back to the Old Testament and put them too much on the Old Testament. And here's what I mean by that. Um, if, I, and I probably have preached a sermon like this if I looked in my history, um, where we focus on that this, this passage is a, a Trinitarian passage, that this passage just teaches us about the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is really a New Testament concept that God revealed to us more, more clearly and understandably in the New Testament. Not that it's completely absent in the Old Testament, but that was not the focus of who God was in the Old Testament. And so it would be easy to stretch this out that those titles are all about the Trinity. Counselor, wonderful counselor. Well, we know that the Spirit is also called the counselor, right? So there's the Spirit. Mighty God. Well, that's the, God, the, the Trinitarian, that's the triune Godhead. That's what we, when we talk about God, that's what we're talking about, the Trinity. And, of course, there's the everlasting Father, and the Father is the Father. And then there's the Prince of Peace. And what is a prince? It's the son of a king, right? And so there you have it, the Trinity. You got the counselor, the Holy Spirit, you got the prince, the son, you got the father, and they all come together to make God. The problem with that, I believe, and, and the reason I want to point this out, is when we take those New Testament concepts and we kind of pick them up and put them back into the Old Testament where they may not completely belong, and we could see all that and put that out there and think that's neat, Sometimes by doing that, by applying too much New Testament to the Old Testament, we sometimes miss the beauty of what the Old Testament was teaching. Because they would have read, they, the, the, the original readers and even the original authors wouldn't have been thinking Trinity when they were writing this passage. They were communicating something else to us. And so we want to dig into those understanding and those words a little bit so that we can have a greater appreciation of who they understood Messiah to be or who he was going to be. And so today, we're covering Wonderful Counselor. And that's uh, where we're going to start. So we're going to start off with, we're just going to take these two words and try to understand them the best we can so we have a greater appreciation for who Jesus is. The first word is Wonderful. Wonderful is a word that we still probably use, but it, it, it's kind of interesting that this time of year, uh, we talk about this being the wonderful time of year, you know, it's, and when we use wonderful, it's usually, like means something like really pleasant, you know, really nice, it was a good time, you know, we have, um, we have movies called The Wonderful Life, right, you know, uh, we, have this song, uh, we have some songs, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Right? Now you know why I preach and not sing. That's a freebie for you. Merry Christmas. But that's that kind of general, pleasant, happy day. You know, we, had a, we went out and we had a wonderful time. That's not what the Old Testament Hebrew word for wonderful actually means. He's not just a a good counselor, a, you know, a kind counselor. It's not just he's a really nice guy. It's much more than that. Actually, one commentator says this, that the Hebrew word here indicates a phenomenon lying outside the realm of human explanation, beyond what they can speak. 
There, there's a verse in Psalm 139, verse 6, it says this, uh, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That's the same word, wonderful, there. That, that to think about who God is, to think about his knowledge, he's so much higher, it's too much for me. I can't attain it. It's high. It's bigger than me. It's, it's, it's something I don't really grasp. And so when we talk about this biblical understanding of the wonderful counselor, it should fill us with wonder, right? That when we think about the Messiah, we should be like, man, I don't know. I wonder how that happens. And I wonder how that happens. And I, I wonder how that works, right? Uh, we should be full of those kind of questions like it doesn't make sense to me. How, how does God become incarnate? How does God leave heaven? I, I wonder and wonder and wonder about these things and I find no answers that really answer the, the, the questions I have. It makes us wonder. We find it amazing, right? He's the amazing counselor. We're, we're amazed by it. You know, uh, as uh, a lot of times we were we were just recently talking about our, our our childhood memories of Christmas, you know, and and the and the guy in the big red suit, and, and we we're amazed by him, right? How does he travel the world in one whole night? How does he fit down a chimney, right? How does all this? How do reindeer fly? And we sit in amazement of all the the magic of the the, the kind of the secular celebration of of Christmas. We should be doubly, triply, infinitely more amazed by Christ, right? That we should sit and wonder, how does that happen? I'm so amazed. That's a, a, a virgin gave birth. Somebody explain that one to me. That's amazing, right? And, re and really, the, when we come down to thinking about who Jesus is, it should just be incomprehensible. That we should sit and be amazed and wonder and think about this is Messiah. He was promised, the first mention of him was promised in the Garden of Eden. And here, thousands and thousands of years later, he arrives. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't understand that. Jesus actually, and so the word, this first word, wonderful should remind us that Jesus is supernatural. Too often we focus, I'm afraid too often we focus on the incarnation and because trying to understand Jesus and the Messiah is so difficult and he's so large that we humanize him a little bit too much. That, that we, we don't remember he's beyond the natural world. He's supernatural, right? He he is beyond us in every way. He is God incarnate. And, and that we should be in awe and, and amazed by that. And maybe even a little afraid, right? That, that if God appeared in this place, that we should quiver and tremble before him because he's so great and mighty and wonderful. And, and not too casually approach him. That we should always have that awe, respect, reverence for who God is because he's supernatural. There's a couple of fulfillments. So this is, an old, this is a messianic prophecy. This is a prophecy about the one who, who's to come. And, and I, I want to go through four. I'm just going to read the verses to you. You can write them down and look them up if you want to later. 
But I'm going to read four, what I think are four really direct fulfillments, at least four really direct fulfillments of that prophecy of, of Jesus being a wonderful counselor. Um, and so the first one happened when young Jesus was in the temple. Um, it says this, this is from Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for, the, for, for you in great distress. He said to them, were you, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and, he, and was submissive to them. And the mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So here's young Jesus interacting with some of the best teachers in the world. And what are they? They're amazed by him. Like they can't understand how this young boy could have the knowledge he had. And then he talks to his mom and dad and they don't understand what he's going on. And so there's a really direct uh, correlation that, that his teaching was wonderful. It was amazing. They, they couldn't understand it. It was beyond their comprehension how this little boy could have such knowledge. I think that's part of the fulfillment of the wonderful counselor. Another one, at the, ser- at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, so his first public sermon, he preaches this long sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, and here's what it says in Matthew the, chapter 7, verse 28. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now again, his teaching, his counsel, his, his, his telling them, sit the crowds going, never heard anything like this how does he do that he, he's teaching not like the scribes he's teaching with authority i i, I don't get it and, and it was amazing and astonishing to them uh one of my favorite ones is jesus and the paralytic found in mark chapter two uh, notice I, I took one example from each of the gospels and they're all fairly early in the gospels that people are just kind of amazed by who he is and this one Mark chapter 2, verse 5, it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your son, your sins are forgiven. Now the scribes are sitting there, and they're questioning in their hearts. Like, they're, they're wondering. They're like, who can forgive? Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so he's caused them to like, wait a second. What's going on here? How can he say that? I don't understand. They're astonished. They're amazed. They're like, this is, this is different right? And here's my favorite part. And Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? And so he was able to read their minds. I mean, he knew what they were thinking and he calls them out on that. And so they go, if it had been me, like, oh no, I wasn't thinking that. Oh yeah, no. But he knew. It's an amazing encounter that he says something that astonishes them and he knows what they're thinking. One other display of Jesus's just this amazing knowledge that he had is when in John's gospel, the first chapter one, when he's calling Nathanael, says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so he's one of those things he says, we found this prophecy, they're looking for the Messiah and he's one of those verses he's talking about is probably this Isaiah verse. We found the one that Isaiah has been talking about. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. 
And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Apparently, Nathanael was taking an afternoon siesta under a fig tree, kind of chilling out in the shade before Philip came him came to him. And that's where Philip came and said, come see. And Jesus points out, like, I saw where you were at before you even came to me. That so amazed Nathanael that, that he had that knowledge, that understanding, that, that ability to see where he was at. This is what he says. And Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He's declaring his messiahship. You are the messiah. You are this one. And so there's at least four very direct, in my opinion, fulfillments of the wonderful part. Because when Jesus interacts with people over and over and over, they're filled with wonder. They're amazed. It's something new, right? And so I would tell you that, that Jesus is mind-blowing, right? If you really start, if you take the time to think about who Jesus is, it will blow your mind. It, it, it's, uh, it's amazing. Today, right before we take communion, we're going to have a time for prayer, a couple of minutes for you to pray. And I want to tell you this now so you can start to think about it because it'll blow your mind. And what, what I really want us to pray about today is just pray about the wonder of who Jesus is. For you to just take two minutes and just ponder and wonder about who Jesus is. Let me just give you some, some things to think about that, that, that blow your mind. That Jesus is part of the Trinity. That should be enough. Uh, one, of our, one, of the, one of the church fathers said something like this, the Trinity. Try to explain it and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. That, that it is an integral part of what we believe and how that Jesus is part of the Godhead. But, and, and, there, and there's three of them, the, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit make up the triune God. And they're all of equal a substance, but they're, they're separate in persons. And how all that works, you could spend a lifetime, and people have spent lifetimes trying to understand and, and just grasp with the idea of a triune God. That Jesus is God incarnate. The theological term, I'll throw out one of those fancy theological terms today, is called the hypostatic union. It's the idea that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. And so that in the person of Jesus, there's 200%. <laughs> that, that he is God incarnate, fully man and fully God at the same time. Amazing. Beyond me. That he was born of a virgin. Just the simple biology of that will amaze you and, and confound you. And it's just a little earlier in Isaiah's, uh, in Isaiah's prophecy where this is promised. Uh, that this son that we're reading about, this, this, that, that there will be a son born into us. It was just a couple of chapters back where it told that the, the, young, the virgin would give birth to this son. That he's a miracle worker. Just pick your favorite miracle. Walking on the water, raising Lazarus from the dead feeding the 5,000, turning the water into wine, casting out demons, uh, uh, stealing the, the storm. Uh, just pick, pick one of many, the, the fishes and the uh, loaves of bread. Uh, think about the, the miraculous things that Jesus did. Uh, it will blow your mind. Jesus rose from the dead. He was dead. 
and three days later, he's alive and walks out of a tomb. That's amazing. And Christianity really hangs on that fact, uh, that he is alive today. Here, here's one that I think of a lot at this time of year. Jesus left paradise. Now, the one place that you and I are doing everything we can to get to, right? All our hope, all our desires, all that we want in life is to get to heaven, and Jesus leaves it. Because I'm telling you, when I get there, I'm not planning on ever leaving, right? You know, and it would probably, uh, now maybe if God himself said, hey, Jason, I want you to leave, but that's tough. Right? And the, just the thought that Jesus left paradise to enter into a world that's fallen. That doesn't amaze us this time of year. And, and in some ways, it even saddens me when I think about that, that. That for me, he had to leave that place to come to this place. You know, as, as I think about him being born as a, as a baby in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, living a life in probably poverty most of his life, when he was the prince <laughs> of heaven, it's an amazing thought as we think about what he actually did in coming to the world to, to, in his advent. And finally, the other one that constantly blows my mind, the giver of grace. The giver of grace, that he, that, that he just freely loves us. And we don't have to earn it. He gives us grace upon grace upon grace. And, I, and I've told you numerous times that just trying to understand grace is so far beyond me. And so here, just when we start to think about Jesus, here's just part of who he is. And it's amazing. It's wonderful. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And so this teaches us something, that faith is the response to the wonderful part. The only way we're going to grasp those things, which we're never going to grasp, is to put our faith in them. That is the response to who Jesus is. The claims of who Christ is leads us to a dilemma of faith. Either we believe it or we don't. Jesus either is all these things or he is not any of these things, right? And this is faith. That is the response we have to put in him. I put, I put my faith of my eternity in that he is all these things, whether I can understand them, comprehend them or not. And because he's wonderful, it requires what God has always required, an act of faith. That I'm just going to believe this, whether it makes sense, whether I can comprehend it, whether it's too wonderful too high for me, and I cannot obtain it, but I will believe it. I will put my faith, and that's who he is, and I will sink or I will swim with Jesus, and that's it. It requires faith to believe this. So we'll move on to the counselor part. Wonderful counselor. We're focusing on these two words. Need to talk about this word a little bit. The, the Hebrew word translated for counselor here is really interestingly interesting. It's used most often uh, in the Hebrew Bible. It's found in the book of Isaiah more than any other book. Jeremiah is a, is a close second, and then it falls off in usage. 
Um, and, and I want to teach you a, a kind of a, a Bible studying principle. When you study the Bible, when you, if you are into looking up words and seeing and, and understanding the words, one of the good principles is to see how that word that you're studying is used by the same author. So when I compare the word counselor in 9-6, I want to look at the other ways that Isaiah uses it throughout the book. All right? And, and actually... Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24, is pretty representative. Uh, most of the time, it says something like this. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. And that word purposed there is the same word we get counselor from in 9.6. And so throughout Isaiah, the word for counselor has, uh, is connected, I'll say it this way, in Isaiah, counsel is often connected with the idea of plans and planning, the things that God has uh, proposed or purposed that carries the guarantee of its accomplishment because it is from the counsel, that is advice direction, of God. And so this idea, he's the great counselor, we could say he's the great planner. He's, the great, he's a wonderful purpose. He has a wonderful purpose. Uh, or he has proposed these wonderful things. He's, just, he's part of this planning and guarantee. And if you look in verse 7, it tells us, it says, The increase of his government and the peace that will be no end for the throne of David and over his kingdom is to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And that last line, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so what I want to understand is that the Messiah and God's plans are guaranteed in his counsel because he says, I will accomplish what I have proposed. I have a purpose for this and I'm going to make sure it happens. And so in Isaiah, that word counsel has, is, is often or always connected with plans and planning. And so here's what we need to understand. Jesus is a wonderful part of God's ultimate plan. So God made a plan for this world early on. And, and, he, and, and Jesus and the coming of Jesus is a part of that plan. That God said this is going to happen and it's going to happen because the wonderful planner, the wonderful counselor has said it will be. And part of that plan is, is like to, to defeat Satan. In Genesis 3.15, where the, where the Messiah is first mentioned, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a promise made to Satan himself. This is God talking to Satan in the Garden of Eden. and said, look, I'm sending somebody. I'm going to send somebody who's going to take care of you. The very first messianic prophecy, Genesis 3.15. And, and part of God's plan, and Jesus is a major part of God's plan to defeat Satan. A little later on in Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18, God's talking to Abraham. And part of who Jesus is and a part of God's plan that Jesus is, is that he's to bless all people. It says, the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn. See, by myself. This is my counsel. This is my purpose. This is what I'm going to do. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and, and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. 
I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore, that your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. A messianic prophecy to Abraham that somebody from his descendants would cause the entire world, all peoples, to be blessed. And we look forward to the second advent when we see revealed in Revelation that people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will gather around the throne and worship the Lamb, the Messiah, the descendant of Abraham who blessed all people. That's part of God's plan and it will be done because God has said, this is what my purpose is. This is what I have proposed. I will do this. My zeal, by myself, I will accomplish this. And finally, in Psalm 110, we see part of that plan is to rule all, that this will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Lord says to my Lord, this is, this is talking about David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter the chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the promise that Jesus is coming to be a greater king than David ever was. And that he will rule all people and all nations as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will sit on high. This is God's plan. And as he says there, I will do this because this is what I have purposed. I will not change my mind. And so that is the idea of wonderful counselor. And as we must realize, though, as we started out today, that God's plan is not yet complete. Acts Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 says, And then why are you gazing into heaven? As he went, behold, two men stood in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's the promise of the second advent. As he went, he's coming back. Or in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Live lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the hastening and coming of the day of God, because on which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We read those verses, and we may be shocked and awed and even a little fearful of the wrath that it talks about, but we need to look beyond that to the advent of Christ. We are waiting for a new heavens 
and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are waiting for paradise. And Jesus will usher that in when he comes back again. And so we sit today in this, this great tense time of celebrating what Jesus did in coming, who it was that came, and amazed by his coming and who he is and all that he did. But we should also sit with the great anticipation of his return and never take our eyes off on what it says at the end of the Bible. Yes, Lord Jesus, come and be as excited about that coming as we are about the first time he came.